Welcome back into the Nick Mott Podcast. And on today's pod, I really wanted to bring this back. Today, it is Take-A-Palooza. If you've missed it, the last couple of years, I've done this a handful of times where I just got a whole bunch of takes built up and I just kind of let them all out. I've got about 14, 15 or so total takes just kind of left over. And I guess what always kind of inspired this was there was this, this Nas song called Book of Rhymes, where he just wrapped little verses from his Book of Rhymes. Clearly, he had some journal, some notebook, where he just would like write verses when they hit him, and, and sometimes he clearly didn't have anywhere to put them, so he just put them all in one song, almost like a casserole or something like that. Well, I guess that's just kind of how, how this is, where sometimes the way my mind works, like uh, uh, something will hit me, uh, I'll maybe go to my computer, I'll write out a take on it, and then it just kind of won't fit into a pod, and then the next pod I won't fit in, and then I'm talking to Bo Rude, and then all of a sudden big story breaks, and then this, and like, before you know it, like a month or two goes by, and I get these like built-up takes that I haven't been able to, to put out there, and I guess that's just, that's what this is. So I got about 14, 15 takes. What I want to do is I want to split it up into two pods, so I got part one, and part two. This is part one of Take a Palooza. I'm going to hit on Ryan Kalkbrenner. I got a quote on Jeff Sims I want to get into. Uh, Tomanaga coming back to Nebraska. The SEC sticking with eight conference games. There's a story that I saw recently that could be a big boost for a, a certain player that could really help Nebraska and Matt Rule next year. And then what you know, I got some thoughts on Trey and Kalkbrenner and what they need to put on their resumes next year. That's all on this pod. So let's do it. Take a Palooza part one. Here we go. Let's start with with Jeff Sims and that quote. So, you know, as we all know, Jeff Sims is the guy next year for Nebraska. I mean, maybe the next two years for for Nebraska. He's got two years of eligibility left. With with Casey Thompson transferring and Sims fully in control of the job, he is the man. Which which made this Really interesting to read. Uh, So ESPN ranked all 133 FBS quarterbacks into different tiers. ESPN had Jeff Sims in tier six. And this tier was described as, quote, a second act after ACC struggles. Here is what was written about Jeff Sims in this story, again, this was on, on ESPN, it says, Then there's Sims, who's always flashed the potential to become a star, but languished behind a woeful offensive line at Georgia Tech and tended to follow a brilliant offensive drive, offensive drives with three or four utterly confounding ones. Of the 70 players with at least 750 dropbacks over the past three seasons, only five have a worse total QBR than Sims, all from outside the Power Five. And only Iowa's Spencer Petrus has completed a lower percentage of his throws than Sims among Power Five players in that span. And yet, for Nebraska fans, there's still those flashes of magic that offer hope. Quote, this is from an ACC coach who's faced Sims. Quote, I think Matt Rule will do a good job with him. We dropped a few interceptions, but he can run. We couldn't tackle him. That's from the story on ESPN, ranking all 133 FBS quarterbacks into tiers. That's what they wrote about Sims. So a lot of stuff to unpack there. Now, first of all, 
you know, you get all fired up about, you know, everything. And then you read something like, like that. And you're kind of like, Ooh, man, some sobering numbers in there. Right. In terms of Sims throwing the football again, what they, what the stories, what, what, what the little blurb said of the 70 players with at least 750 dropbacks over the past three seasons, only five have a worse total QBR than Jeff Sims. And only Spencer Petras has a lower completion percentage. Now, for anybody that watched Iowa play football, they know that Petras was a, a train wreck at times. So those are not very flattering things to read. But you know what's interesting? I read that and I wasn't just like immediately got in my car and wanted to go buy a big bottle of whiskey and start chugging it. I, w- I wasn't quite there with it. I read that, and this I guess this was how I my take on all this. The first thing I was thinking about was Sims mechanics. Watching him in the spring game, you watch a little bit of like YouTube highlights on him and stuff like that. Uh, full disclosure, I never watched like a real, real-time Georgia Tech game where Sims was out there playing. I, I So I've only watched highlights of him, and then you watch him in the spring game. The, one of my first things I thought about was I like how Sims throws the ball. I like, I like how his arm looks. Just that gut, first gut reaction to watch someone throw. Like, it looks okay. Good, quick, compact delivery and release. He appears to have some arm strength. So it's not like we're working with, like, a Scott Frost throwing motion or even maybe, like, a Taylor Martinez-type level of mechanics where he's, you know, off his back foot and it kind of looks like he's, you know, they're both kind of shot-put throws at times. Like, Sims looks pretty mechanically sound, so that's a good place to start, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, when I look at a, a jump shot in a player, like, of course, you look at the percentages and you go, okay, the percentages are good. But then I, like, look at their mechanics. And if the mechanics aren't broken, like, then there's something to work with. But if something, they got a hitch, you know, the ball's released on the wrong side of their, their face, they, they shoot a, a, a knuckleball, they got whatever. Like, you go, ooh, I don't know about, about that. But his mechanics are good. So that was the first thing I thought about. Like, I, I see all the lower completion percentage, you know, total QBR, really low, all those things. But, like, I, I like what it looks like. But what I, what I really found interesting was actually that last quote in the story from the ACC coach who faced Jeff Sims. He said, he can run. We couldn't tackle him. We couldn't tackle him. I'm sorry, for me, in college, I'm so drawn towards and partial towards quarterbacks that can run. I just am. I always feel better if my quarterback's got a little wiggle to him and you can utilize him in the QB run game or if the pocket breaks down, he can really hurt you running the ball. Like, I'm always just, I'm always leaning towards those dudes. I just am. I get it. The most important thing for a quarterback you know, is is standing in the pocket and accurately throwing the football. It is. But, you know, there's also something to be said for a quarterback that can run, especially in college. And that's what I'm really excited about to watch with Jeff Sims. I think he's got a chance to be a really dynamic runner. And I think because of that, I think his legs can help open things up and make things easier for him throwing the football. I just, I looked at those, you know, you know, about seven, you know, five, six, seven years ago, 
those Ohio State quarterbacks that that Urban Meyer had for a stretch, from Braxton Miller to JT Barrett, like those guys were great athletes. They could throw a little bit, but the, the, what they really could do is they could run. They could really run, and man, Urban Meyer ran them quite a bit, and it was a bitch to stop them. JT Barrett, Braxton Miller, those guys. I mean, those guys were hard to defend. And also, listen, man, I'm a Lincoln Nebraskan. I grew up watching, you know, Tommy Frazier, Brooke Behringer, Scott Frost, Bobby Newcomb, Mary Crouch, Jamal Lord. Like those guys were tough to stop, and it wasn't mainly wasn't because of their arms, it was because of their ability to run. So to me, I just to hear an opposing ACC coach say, we couldn't tackle him. That's attention grabbing to me. And, you know, I think while this offense is finding itself and still growing in that offensive line and maybe lacking some elite weapons on the perimeter and still without a bell cow star running back, I think when you consider all of that, a quarterback that can run can help remedy a ton of a ton of that. And that appears to be Jeff Sims. So I don't know, it's hard. It's like you don't want to make you don't want to make Sims out to be like, you know, he can't hit water out of a boat throwing the ball or something like that. But his numbers are what they are, and they're not great right now in terms of completion percentage and all those kinds of things. But, you know, for me, I think he can improve those throwing numbers, the QBR, the completion percentage, all those based on his mechanics and maybe a better situation around him, coaching, et cetera, all those kinds of things. And I think given the, the circumstances of the situation as well, I, I gravitate towards more of a, of a, of a dual-threat athlete at quarterback at the college level. And I think what we are all going to be talking about a ton early on in the season in year one under Matt Rule is Jeff Sims, the runner. Coaches have said they want to run the quarterback. Sims appears to have the athleticism and, and could be pretty special back there running the football. And when an opposing coach says they couldn't tackle him, that, ca- that catches my attention. So I'm excited to watch him run. I really am. But it's just interesting to read. You know, you get all excited about seeing Sims and you're, you know, I mean, we're all, we've all fall victim to it. The next thing is the best thing. That's just like, I don't know. People say humans are, are just like, I don't know, like a lot of them anymore are pessimistic by nature. I don't know. I think some of us are just like naturally optimistic. The next thing is the best thing when in sports, right? The next, you're, if you're a, you know, you're a pro fan, you're a you're pro team, like when they draft, the next draft is going to be the best draft. The next, the next team is going to be the best team. The next star is going to be the best star. The next quarterback is going to be the best quarterback. So, I mean, you, you get caught in that world with Sims, and then you read something like that. Okay, lowest, only Spencer Peaches, lower completion percentage. All right. Only five at a worst QBR of 750 dropbacks or less three years. Oh, boy. But I don't know. You guys, I, you guys saw him. Like, I think his mechanics look okay. So you can work with that, and he can run. Be interested to see what he looks like. Let's take number one. All right. I, I, so I want to get into this. Take number two here. So I saw this story and quote on Husker Online. This is, this is a quote. This is Garrett McGuire, Nebraska wide receivers coach, on Xavier Betts. 
says, quote, Xavier never missed a meeting, never missed a practice while doing a lot of schoolwork. That was really, really impressive. And then I saw Damon Benning reply in the tweet of the story that was posted that Xavier Betts took 21 hours of classwork and has a healthy GPA. I mean, that's, that's impressive. For a guy that, that, you know, stepped away from football at, at heading into this last year for Scott Frost and then kind of maybe was, was heading down not a great path and, and wasn't going to class and all those things, for him to then hop back into this thing, have a lot of classwork to make up for to get himself academically eligible, all those kinds of things, all while, you know, doing his thing on the football field. Like, that's it's impressive, right? Not only is this great for Xavier Betts as a person and his journey, but to me, this is great news for Nebraska football. If he continues on this path, right, and and gets academically eligible and all that stuff. Because one of my takeaways from the spring was, I think Nebraska is lacking some playmakers on on offense. I think that's a big, legitimate question mark for next year. Nebraska's arsenal of offensive weapons feels like it's potentially lacking a little bit. And the one thing we do know, Xavier Betts has a ton of raw talent as a playmaker. We saw it in the long touchdown run against Penn State at home during the COVID season. We saw it against Oklahoma on the road with that long catch down the Nebraska sideline in the second half to kind of spark the comeback. We saw it against Northwestern at home on that long touchdown run on on an option on the first play of the second half at home against the Wildcats. Like, he's got some real talent. He just needs to get focused and locked in. And to me, you pass 21 hours and still do what you're needing to do with your duties with football, that's a great sign that you're focused and locked in. And if Nebraska can get Xavier Xavier Betts back into the mix in the wide receiver room, that's an important development for this offense. I think think the offense is lacking some dynamic playmakers, and the one thing I know is Betts has a, you know, he's got some big play potential. So hopefully he stays on this path, not only for him as a person, but I think it's really important for this Nebraska offense. They need some more home run hitters, and I think Betts is that if his mind's right and he's on the field ready to rock. Next thought I got. So I I, I, I saw this, this story that the SEC announced they are sticking with only eight conference games instead of moving to nine conference games, which is obviously what the Big Ten and some other power conferences do. SEC sticking with eight conference games. So, okay. I mean, if you've listened to me over the last five, six, seven years, whether it goes back to my 16, 20 zone radio days or the, you know, the first handful of years, I've been doing this pod since 2019. I've been a broken record on a couple of things. One of those things have been just how badly college football needs some universal scheduling parameters for all of the power five as bad as anything else. It's to me, if oh, there's a lot of pressing things, college football, you know, conference expansion, the playoff, NIL, I think universal scheduling parameters and mandates are, are just as important in some ways. I think everyone needs to play the same amount of conference games. 
I think FBS programs need to do away with playing FCS schools, and I definitely not playing FCS schools in mid-November, SEC. But I've been over this a million times. But I think what I what I really mean with all that, and then seeing this story, and then this stat, is this. I think arguably the biggest thing that needs to be mandated universally in college football is everyone in the Power Five has to play the same amount of Power Five opponents on your schedule. Look at this stat from Scott Document of The Athletic. Look at this stat. How about this? So here we go. Going by conference here. Teams playing at least 10 Power 5 opponents in 2023. The Big Ten has 13 teams out of 14 schools playing at least 10 Power 5 opponents. 13 of the 14 Big Ten teams are playing at least 10. Big 12, 11 teams are going to play 10 Power 5 opponents out of 14 schools. Pac-12, 10 teams are going to play at least 10 Power 5 opponents in 2023. ACC, 10 teams out of 15. 10 of 15 are going to play at least 10 Power 5 opponents. And then the SEC pulling up the rear. Two teams out of 14 SEC teams. Two are going to play 10 Power 5 opponents. Really let that sink in. 13 out of 14 Big Ten teams will play at least 10 Power 5 opponents in 2023. Only two out of 14 SEC teams will play at least 10 Power 5 opponents. Really let that sink in. That is incredibly eye-opening. That makes an enormous difference on a variety of levels. So while the SEC dominance and SEC being great at football isn't necessarily wrong, right, especially when you look at national titles and NFL draft picks and all that stuff, it's still pretty amazing to think about the fact that the SEC gets to have the benefit of the doubt heading into it and gets to play less Power 5 teams. Two of 14 SEC schools will play at least 10 Power 5 opponents 13 Big Ten schools will play at least 10 Power 5 opponents. That's jarring. That's eye-opening. I'll say this, though, as I'm just hurling arrows at the SEC in defense of the SEC. Listen, man, if nobody's going to force them to change, why would they? If they aren't going to get punished by the College Football Playoff Committee or with TV revenue or a television deal or anything like that, why would they change? They get to play eight conference games, not nine, and they get to play an FCS opponent in mid-November and then however many cream puffs they want to play to fill out the rest of their schedule. And they don't get punished for it, and nobody is making them change. So why would they? I get it. I may not like it, but I get it. But that doesn't mean it's fair or, be- or best for the sport. It's not fair, and it's certainly not what's best for the sport. 
And this is example 858 as to why college football has to get some sort of commissioner or major legit legislative body in place overseeing these things. Because if they don't, everyone is going to continue to just look out for themselves and not the greater good of the sport. But to circle back to that stat, out of the 14 SEC schools, only two will play 10 Power 5 opponents in 2023 on their schedule right now. 13 of the 14 Big Ten schools will play at least 10 Power 5 opponents. Man, if you're not like as wide-eyed at that, man, I, that that's all, that's crazy to me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And you, you certainly hope that decision from the Big Ten to play higher quality football teams gets rewarded on some level. Like, I know me as a media member and a fan, I really appreciate it. I'd much rather see Nebraska play at Colorado than play, you know, another South Alabama at home or something like that. I'd much rather see Nebraska play at Michigan State than play Northern Iowa. I mean, I got to think if you're, you know, uh, a South Carolina football fan, you'd much rather see them play you know, Auburn than play Mercer. So I hope one day we see a college football world where you know, at the very least everyone plays the same amount of Power 5 opponents on their schedule heading in. Now, I will say maybe the 12-team playoff will help solve some of this stuff with the auto bids and all that, but when you have a committee who is deciding who's in and who's out of the playoff. That is incredibly subjective and inexact and really challenging to do. So, you know, the least college football can do to help the committee is, you know, try to give them apples to apples schedules when judging and ranking teams, right? School, like you're looking, okay, school A played eight conference games, no road non-conference games. They played an FCF school in mid-November, and they only played nine Power 5 opponents total on their schedule. Okay, School B played nine conference games. They played a road non-conference game. They, don't, they didn't play any FCS team in mid-November, and they have 10 Power 5 opponents on their schedule. Like comparing, comparing those two teams is much harder to do than if they were at least playing a similar schedule with certain criteria met. In the meantime, enjoy your eight conference games, SEC, and and only nine Power 5 opponents on your schedule, and enjoy playing Roast Beef State at your place in mid-November when the grind of the season is at its peak of the physical toll and the pressure is at its highest. Enjoy that. Next thought. I haven't hit on this yet, but it's, it's it was a huge story last week. So th- it was incredibly important and huge for Fred Hoiberg that Casey Tominaga announced that he is returning to Nebraska last week. Huge. 
I mean, you got to remember, this dude was lava hot for the final month or so of the season. The final nine, I looked it up again. The final nine games of the season, he was on a heater. Tominaga was averaging 20 points per game. He made 28 threes in those nine games. He was, that's a little over three threes a game. And Nebraska went six and three in those games. And they were beating like real NCAA tournament teams. You know, two of those losses were like the the clunker at the end against Minnesota in the Big Ten tournament where that game could have gone either way. And then the Michigan State game at home where Michigan State went otherworldly good to get as hot as I've seen a team get all season last year in the second half to beat Nebraska. Or they were looking at like a real, you know, they, they could have easily gone like eight and one in their final nine games. And Tominaga was the driving force with that. And I'm not gonna, he kind of made me a believer during that stretch. Because, you know, up until that point, yeah, I get it. He was the Japanese Steph Curry and all that stuff and, like, his willingness to shoot at any time. You kind of go, okay, this dude, like, and, and I would hear from whether it was Jake Muleheisen or, you know, people on the staff, like, man, you don't get it. This guy does not miss in practice. I'm like, okay, well, he just, you know, he doesn't make a lot of them in the games, right? Well, what's going on? But all of a sudden, once he got hot, you go, oh, okay. Pretty damn impressive. So, him coming back, Tominaga come back is huge. And, you know, when, for me, when I looked at Nebraska's roster for next year, when I was looking at it, at that roster, and, and Tominaga maybe being back, maybe not, I looked at it and I was like, man, if Tominaga, like, you remove him the equation, I feel like they're going to struggle to score. So getting Tominaga back is huge in that regard. And the thing you got to understand about, about Kese Tominaga, or any truly elite shooter, is, you know, my joke all the time is shooters are like bacon. You put them with it, they make everything better. Like, you put a shooter on the floor that just makes the whole, just go, oftentimes going to make your team better. Mainly because they impact the play offensively every single time, even if they don't touch the ball or shoot, because you've got to guard them everywhere. That creates space and scoring opportunities for the four other guys just by them stepping on the court. And if you think about it, think about you're an opposing coach and you're getting ready to play Nebraska next year. So thinking about this new roster, you're getting ready to play Nebraska next year. You sit down in your coach's meeting. You got your cup of coffee. You're like, all right, defensive game plan. What are we thinking? What's important? What's priority number one? It's going to be stopping Tominaga. Knowing where he's at. Lock and trail him. What screens are we going over? Are you going to switch him? Are you not? Are you going to any sort of handoff? Are you blitzing it? Are you showing recover? Are you like... All those kinds of things. Are you forcing him into the staggered screen? Are you going to force him away from it? Like, what are you doing? That That's going to be the focal point for these, these teams that are playing Nebraska next year. And that is, that's like, that's going to create potential opportunities for the other four guys on the floor. Now, I will say this, in what we're talking about here, this is going to be now a different world for him for the totality of the season being that that is probably going to be the case. He potentially, at least at the start of the year, is going to be at the top of every Big Ten team's defensive scouting report 
to try and slow him down. And that's a big task to tackle if you're Tomonaga. And the thing that I'll be fascinated to see is, and you know, I've talked about this, but how good can Tomonaga be without Derek Walker? Derek Walker's post-passing and and the five-out stuff they'd run with him at the top of the key, passing from that center position, was vital for Tomonaga. Like, I'd imagine the vast majority of Tomonaga's points came off a Derek Walker assist. So now you remove Walker and his natural playmaking ability from that five spot, which is unique. What does that look like for, for Tominaga now? Can Rank Mass, the, the Bradley transfer, can he do some of the post-passing stuff, some of the five-out stuff? That's going to be crucial to find out. Because Tominaga, while he can put it on the deck a little bit and get to the basket, he's more of a guy that, like, I think the thing that makes him special and unique is he's the kind of guy that can score 20 points and not take a dribble. Like, what you don't want is Tominaga putting it on the ground a bunch. You don't want Tominaga walking the ball up the floor, dribbling it, and then pounding it, and coming off two ball screens, and then, you know, in and out, cross, cross. Right? Like, that's not Tominaga's game. Tominaga's game is he's in the corner. Here comes a staggered screen for him. Someone tries to go under the screen. He pops back, catch, shoot. Here's a guy's trying to cheat over. He backdoor cuts, catch, layup. Like, that's Tominaga's game. But in order for any of that to work, someone's got to get him the ball. Who is that someone going to be? It was Derek Walker last year. Who's it going to be this year? I also wonder how much Fred Hoiberg is going to basically, is he going to sell out to building the offense around Tominaga again? Because to a certain degree, that's what kind of happened in the final month of the season after all of the the injuries. You know, the offense was was kind of catered around Tominaga. The other four guys on the floor headhunting his defender with a screen to free him up. And having him come off screens or cut to the rim. So everyone on the floor was focused on screening for Tominaga and finding him. And so I wonder if that's how Nebraska will run offense again. Or is that more, some some of it was a product of Derek Walker's skill set too. It was kind of like, that's why it worked perfectly. It was like what unleashed Tominaga was the same thing that unleashed Walker. And so those two guys like fed off each other. So I wonder what, you know, Fred's got a great offensive mind, how he unleashes Tominaga again. I just wonder what that'll look like. I wonder if that's what the offense will look like or if that was just a product of the situation given all the injuries and who is on the floor. But for me, I actually think focusing on Tominaga's movement is a good place to build the offense for next year, at least initially. Because I oftentimes think about offenses like this. What do you have to respect you're going against some team, like what? what is something or someone that you have to honor or you have to react to defensively and have a plan for? What draws help, draws maybe two or three defenders to you, right? Ball goes inside to Zach Eady. You got a decision to make. You got a dilemma. Kemba Walker's coming off a ball screen. Uh-oh, what are we doing? Carmelo Anthony just caught the ball at the at the at the the elbow. He's ISO'd. Got Jerry McNamara in the ball side corner. Ugh. Sorry, I went to 2003 Syracuse. Not anything in the NBA, but I'm talking college here. But like, what are you? Oh, Melo's ISO'd. Uh oh. What are you doing? And I guess I just look at Nebraska's roster 
And as of right now, Tominaga coming off screens and running around and his ability to shoot is, is kind of the only thing I feel like I definitely got to honor and respect right now. C.J. Wilcher or Aaron Eulis or, you know, I don't know, Josiah Alec. Like, these guys, they, they got to kind of prove it first. Tominaga, I respect it. I'm, I'm going to honor it. And when you have that thing, that thing being whether it's Edie posting up or Kemba coming off ball screen or Mellow Isod, or in this case, Tominaga coming off, you know, handoffs and pin downs and all that stuff. When you have that thing that draws helps, draws help, maybe draws multiple defenders to them, that can start the dominoes falling for a good offensive possession. Because now you can get the defense out of position. You all of a sudden two are on the ball. You get it out of there. You're scrambling. You're you're attacking and finding a shot in an easier way. So to me, Tominaga gives them that fastball to work with, that run game you got to honor, that jab that an opponent has to deal with. So that's good. And then lastly, you know, with Tominaga, he was a crowd favorite, man. Pinnacle Bank Arena, that crowd goes crazy for this guy. Tominaga is that rare combination of a great scorer who plays with so much enthusiasm and energy, and the crowd loves it. So to me, the crowd's going to be juiced up again. And any way you look at it, Tominaga coming back is important. So I'm excited for that first 28-footer he launches at Pinnacle Bank Arena. I can't can't wait. Because regardless of what happens, the crowd's going to be on their feet for it. All right, sticking with hoops. I I was thinking about this with Ryan Kalkbrenner, you know, and I was was thinking about – him coming back and then, you know, maybe what he needs to do to the NBA, show to the NBA and, and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I hope with Kalkbrenner, I hope he doesn't go away from what he does best and what Creighton needs most from him to prove something to the NBA, to prove that he can shoot and make threes. Like, he still needs to pick and roll to the rim and be by the rim in the paint 90% of the time. I mean, he's been top 10 in field goal percentage the last two years. He's sixth all-time in NCAA history in field goal percentage for his career so far because he he shoots high-percentage shots at the rim. So you don't want to go away from what has made him successful, and that's his, his him rolling to the rim is really special. So I just don't want him to, like, turn to turn away from that in an effort to prove something to the NBA. My guess is it'll be more maybe set shots for him than him and, and getting him comfortable with and and just letting it fly in the flow of the offense. Kalkbrenner kind of said that in his press conference the other day where he was like, he had the green light from Coach McDermott, but it just was more of like getting comfortable shooting it in a real game. Because he brought up a good point. It's way, Shooting it in a drill is way different than shooting it in a, in a game. And if you're not comfortable catching and letting it rip in a game, it's going to take a little bit. But the reality is this. Every opponent that plays Creighton next year is going to say, th- be really happy with him taking threes over rolling to the basket. It's like this last year with Adama Sinogo, UConn stud. So Sinogo worked really hard on his three-point shot. He went from never taking them to where he made 19 last year. He got to where he was like a, I mean, he was okay three-point shooter. But I guarantee you, I know for me, every time he shot it, a three, you feel like the defense is like, thank you. Thank you. 
So I just hope that Kalkbrenner and, you know, what he does best and what Creighton needs still takes precedent over anything that the NBA wants to see from him. And, you know, for the record, Ryan Kalkbrenner is really smart. He's really intelligent. So is Greg McDermott. Those guys have no ego. Kalkbrenner's got no ego. So I don't think this will be an issue. I'm not saying it's going to be, but it's just something I was thinking about. Because you have seen this in other instances where guys, they get into the draft, they enter the draft, go through that process, get feedback, and then they like get way too caught up in, in proving, to, improving what they can do to for the NBA at the expense of what maybe they do best and what their team needs from them in college. You've, you've seen that. But it's just that, so that was just something I was thinking about. Again, I don't think this is going to be an issue, but it was just something I was thinking. Speaking of of Kalkbrenner and and Trey Alexander announcing they're returning and all that stuff, and I and I had my pod. You can you can go listen to it where I you know I went about 30, 40 minutes reacting to their decisions uh, to return to Creighton, and and in that podcast, I you know I went into what the NBA is probably looking for for both guys and all that stuff with Trey Alexander. They're probably looking for him to play on the ball more, show he's a legit combo guard. It can maybe even play some point guard and show that he can continue to shoot it at a really high percentage from three at maybe a higher volume of shots, et cetera, et cetera. And with my, Ryan Kalkbrenner was, you know, can he step out and, and shoot more threes and make more threes and, and continue to defend the rim and even switch and slide his feet on smaller players and all those things. And while everything I, I just laid out, all those things are real and they matter in the eyes of the NBA and what they want to see, I still believe this to be true. I still, and maybe I'm just being like I'm, I'm wanting to live in a perfect world here. I, I still want to believe that the best and most important thing those those guys, Kalkbrenner and Trey Alexander, can put on their resume is winning. I, I truly believe that. I, I just I think when you're a fringe draftable player or a fringe mid-second round guy, maybe late first round guy, how you impact winning and the simple question of did your team win matters. Like, yes, of course, if you're... Anthony Edwards at Georgia and your team stinks. You're Anthony Edwards. And you're a, you're a top you're a, you're potentially like a you know an all NBA guy. Like your team stinking doesn't isn't going to scare off people. Or Ben Simmons at LSU. Maybe we should have been worried about him. But but if you're a fringe dude, I think I think your team success could be a could could factor into things. The deeper the deeper you go in the tournament, should matter. It's a bigger stage, bigger eyeballs, all those kinds of things. And so I just was told this at a young age, and it's always stuck with me. I think it was maybe my brother that told me this when he was he was my coach growing up. But, like, I, I just believe this mantra to be true in sports. And I really think this can be true for business, too, like anything in life, when if you're working with a group of people. Team success breeds individual success. Team success breeds individual success. If Creighton struggles and makes the NIT or barely makes the tournament and they lose in the first round or maybe all hell breaks loose and they really struggle last, this next year and miss the tournament, I would think one of the first things scouts are going to look at and go, what was going on there? What, what was 
What was going on at Creighton? And I, I just simply look at it like this. If Creighton wins, if they go back to the Elite Eight, they get to the Final Four, they maybe you know win the Big East, they win the Big East tournament, all those things that are maybe in the cards for next year. If Creighton wins, the only way that that happens is Kalkbrenner and Trey Alexander are playing great. Notice I didn't say aren't necessarily proving all of the things that I'm talking about with the NBA, they're, but they're playing great. And then conversely, if Creighton doesn't win, that likely means Kalkbrenner and Trey Alexander, they aren't playing great. They're, playing, they're not playing very good. And then the chips fall from there, right? Pretty simple. I just think winning solves a lot of things. Winning solves a lot of things. Go make another deep run in the tournament. Don't get too caught up or too tunnel visioned on your own game and your own stats and what you are doing. And, oh, my God, I didn't I didn't play on the ball enough this game and I didn't come enough ball screens to show. Oh, I didn't shoot enough threes. Oh, my God, we're four games into the season. I've only made one three. Oh, my God. No, go win, and I think things will fall into place. That's still the biggest thing to focus on with your resume and what to show the NBA. That's just my opinion. But that mantra is, is something that I, I just believe to be true. Team success breeds individual success. Period. A Heard at Sports Network production.